0: Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Glad you're able to be here with us. Quick question. How many of us have a commute that is more than 30 minutes to get here? More than 30 minutes. All right, several. Anyone uh, approaching an hour on your commute? All right, some of you are an hour. Uh, anyone here from North Carolina that drove up to be with us for worship? Oh, right over here. Wonderful. Yes, I just want to say hi to my new friends, Dawn and Eddie, who uh, listened to our church podcast and drove up from North Carolina to be here with us today. So be sure to greet them uh, before you leave today, but glad to see you guys. Also, Dawn grew up in Germany, so she knows how to pronounce my last name the right way. I appreciated that, Dawn. (laughs) It's great to see everybody this morning. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark, and today we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. We began chapter 2 a couple weeks ago, and today we're going to pick up at verse 13 of Mark chapter 2. So if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me, we're going to be talking about the fact that sometimes the best things in this world, the things that this world is offering you, we lose interest in those things over a period of time, and um, and that's that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. And we're going to be able to see an example of someone who had the best of this world, but the best of this world stopped interesting him once he realized what he had in Jesus. And so, if you would, Mark chapter 2, starting with verse 13, this is what the passage says. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for giving us the privilege to be able to look at this portion of your word together today. Lord, I'm just so grateful for who you are and for what you demonstrate uh, through your Son and through his earthly ministry. Father, we commit this time of study to you. We thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege to just open your Word and read and think about the things that you've communicated to us here. And we thank you, Lord, that as we look at the ministry of your Son, Jesus Christ, as as we see what he accomplished and how he interacted with those that, that he was very intentional to seek, Lord, we pray that we would learn more about your nature, your will, and how you're intentionally seeking us. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be able to look at this now. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So I I recently read a story about a high school janitor that I actually found rather fascinating and encouraging. Uh, From my perspective, by the way, and I was actually just talking with my daughter, Julia, about this, uh, just yesterday... Um, But from my perspective, one of the most character-forming jobs a person can ever take on involves cleaning up after other people. Wouldn't you agree? Like, that's a character-forming job. If you're cleaning up after other people, that's character-forming. She works at a beauty salon, and and, uh, her last task on a Saturday is to clean that place and to make sure it's presentable and, and, and in good shape. You know, parents certainly understand, by the way, the process of cleaning up after other people, right, grandparents understand it as well. Anyone involved in property management understands the process. I have to say I first came to understand the process of cleaning up after, after other people when I was a, a young person working at my father's store in Scranton, Pennsylvania. My job in the evenings when the store closed, this was not a pretty job, but my job was to clean up the meat department. I had to clean up the meat department before, before I could leave the store, and you wonder why I'm not in the grocery business, right? That, that will cure you of it for sure. But, uh, but just the same, that, that was quite the process. I have to say my, my family in general really grew to appreciate just the process and the nature of cleaning up after other people when we used to uh, direct a conference center for several years and at the end of retreats and at the end of events we'd join together with our staff and we would have to clean that entire property from top to bottom it was exhausting it was challenging it was sometimes humbling and uh, so anyway earlier this week i was reading about this particular janitor and i read about the the fact that you know he spent the bulk of his career cleaning up other people's messes but he didn't really mind it and he wasn't married he didn't have any children But the others-centered attitude that he developed in the process of cleaning up after others, it actually developed within him just a form of love that sometimes not enough people are willing to demonstrate. And he started thinking about what he wanted to do with his life and how he wanted to use his life at a pretty early age. And again, he didn't have any plans to get married or have children or anything like that. Uh, And since he didn't have anyone else he needed to financially provide for, he thought, you know, I'm going to live my life rather simply, I'm going to keep my expenses very low, I'm going to keep my lifestyle very simple, and he made it his goal to pay for the educations of as many young people as he possibly could from then until retirement, and my understanding from what I read was that during his career, he actually funded the educations of 33 people, 33 people. He funded the educations of 33 people. And I believe from what I read that he did it in a way that I, my understanding is that most of them didn't know that it was him that did it. And I looked at that and I thought to myself, that's rather impressive because obviously this man could have lived for himself. Like I would suspect most people really do in this world, but he actually found a greater joy in being a blessing to others. And when many people hear a story like that, I think it stands out because it's so different from what we commonly see in this world. I mean, that's why it stood out to me. It's just so different from how you would expect somebody to live in this world. There are things that this world offers that we are constantly encouraged to grab hold of, and we're constantly encouraged to just aspire to get more and more and more of these things, but where does that really leave us? And maybe the better question is, will that fill the void or fill the longing that all of us have within us if we actually get the things of this world that we're encouraged to chase after? It doesn't fill the void. You know, it's interesting when you look through, and we've been working our way the past few weeks through the gospel of Mark, we're seeing the, the earthly ministry of Jesus and how He was carrying things out. And His earthly ministry demonstrated that His aspirations were on a higher level than most of the people around him. He was thinking about things on a higher level than the people that were surrounding him. You had people flocking to Jesus mainly for what they could get from him. So they were flocking to him because they wanted to get something from him. And then you have other people that were coming to hear what Jesus had to say and kind of hanging out on the fringes mainly because they had a critical spirit and they wanted to find some way that they could bring accusation against him in the midst of what he was doing. And these were people that cared more about the finer things of this world than the deeper needs of the soul. And so they looked at Jesus, and they were critical about what he was doing, and they expressed that criticism. But Jesus, when you look at what he said, and when you look at what he did, he attempted to show this world that, that there's a better way to live that's anchored in a higher level of belief. And one such person that we see in the portion of Scripture that we just read, who came to understand what Jesus was trying to show him, was a man named Levi. And The Scripture tells us that Levi was a tax collector, but let me reread the portion of Scripture that we started with, with verse 13 and then verse 14. It tells us, it says, so it says, he went out, so it's referencing Jesus, Jesus went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him. Now, again, I think some people were coming out of curiosity. I think some people were coming because of what they hoped he would do for them. But then there were other people that were coming because they wanted to find something they could criticize him about. And it says, he, he, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. It's a very interesting account that we're given here in Mark's gospel. Now, I don't know too many people who get excited about paying taxes, all right? If you're one of them, um, you are an anomaly, because I don't know too many people get excited about it. I think most of us realize, by the way, that taxation has the potential to fund government operations and the potential to fund public works, but because most taxation systems in the history of the world have been routinely abused, it's hard to find very many people that enjoy being taxed. And uh, if I dare say this, do I say this? What do you think, Ray? Do I say it? Do I not say it? Ray's saying don't say it. All right, maybe I don't say it. No, I'm going to say it, Ray. The people that seem to celebrate taxation most are those that are typically being enriched from the system more so than those that are contributing to the system. True? False? I think it's true. And that was true during Levi's time as well, just as it's true during our time. And the scripture tells us here that Levi was a tax collector that that Jesus passed by when he was going back and forth between Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus would oftentimes teach by by the water there. And the way I picture that this was going, you know, typically as you get closer to water, typically the ground will slope a little bit. And so it can oftentimes be a, a, you know, a a situation where you can speak and people can fan out on a hillside or something like that leading up to water. So maybe some of the circumstances he's spoken were like that. Maybe it was just a good meeting place for a large group of people. But regardless, he would typically uh, teach by the Sea of Galilee. And um, and he would go back and forth from Capernaum to the sea. And it's very likely that Levi saw him multiple times. I imagine that that's entirely possible. It's also very likely that Levi was a very wealthy man. Uh, most tax collectors who worked for the Roman government were wealthy because in addition to the amount that they were allowed to take as just their compensation for doing their job, a lot of them figured out, you know, I can just tell people that they have to pay whatever I tell them, and they've got to pay it. And so they would make up numbers that weren't the actual amount that people had to pay. They would put a little bit extra on top of that. And people knew they were doing it, but they didn't always have a lot of recourse to do anything about it. And so that was the reputation that tax collectors happened to have at the time, where they would add a little bit more to uh, what they were collecting. They'd overcharge, and then they would pocket the proceeds. And many of the tax collectors of the era became wealthy men as they would do this. Now, the Jewish people, as all of us would, they resented being cheated in this way. They weren't crazy about it. I wouldn't be crazy about it either. And, you know, picture the context that they were in. So not only did they already despise being under Roman rule... But they also resented being forced to give money that they earned to a government that did not align with their values and their views and their aspirations, uh, a government that they felt insulted by as they were overtaken, basically, by Roman might. And then, on top of that, they found it particularly distasteful when one of their own, a Jewish man like Levi chose to work for the government in this way. They looked at him and they're like, you're just a sellout. You ever hear somebody call that? You're just a sellout. You're just a traitor. You sold out. You have no soul. You know, they look at him, and they think, how could you how can you sell your people out like this? They resented that. When a Jewish man during that era was willingly just just willing to take a job like this as a tax collector working for the Roman government, he was essentially ostracized from the community. The people didn't want to have anything to do with him. His friends and his families would avoid, him, it would avoid him because just the shame that he would bring upon them. They didn't want to be associated with the guy. So you had that. He was also excommunicated from the local synagogue. That was common practice. If You're a Jewish man who worked as a tax collector for the Roman government. You're excommunicated from the local synagogue, and basically you become treated like an outcast among your own people because your loyalties, they start demonstrating that you, that you value riches, riches over relationships and dishonest gain over faithful loyalty. And so at that point, people write you off. They say, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't care if you're family. I don't care if you're a longstanding friend. If you're going to sell out our people like this, if you're going to be a tax collector, stealing from your own people, we don't want to have anything to do with you. So you look at Levi... And he's in the midst of what people would say, at least from the Roman side of things, that's a good career, you know, he's a tax collector. Tax collectors become wealthy. And so you look at Levi, and Levi was very likely wealthy, but he was also probably very lonely. And I would imagine he was also used to, at this point, being despised and being rejected. Most people didn't want to have anything to do with him. And I would imagine that over time... As he was living out this life, you know, it probably seemed promising at first, you know, this idea of being a wealthy man, but I suspect that he was gradually starting to realize that, that trading relationships for dishonest gain wasn't worth it. At one point, I guess he thought it was going to be worth it, but I think at this point he was probably starting to realize it's not worth it. I also suspect that he never thought his reputation could be renewed or recovered. I think he probably thought that I've basically ruined my reputation among my people. But then you look at what Jesus does here, and Jesus demonstrated that restoration was absolutely possible. And it's an interesting thing for us to think about because I don't know where you think you are if you think that you are so far gone or so far in a direction that Jesus cannot renew and restore your life or renew and restore your reputation or make something new of your life that you feel like you messed up in so many spheres but if your life looks like Levi's, take heart, because Jesus does something pretty amazing in Levi's life. And here it tells us that as Jesus passed Levi by, passes by, passes by the tax collecting booth, he looks at Levi, and he doesn't ask a question. And he doesn't, he doesn't really even give an invitation, if you really look at the context of the words that he says. He gives a command. He looks at Levi, and he says, What? Follow me. And he, again, he, it's, it's not, he doesn't say it as really even an, an option. He just he says this as a command. The context of those words as they're given here, it's a command. He says, follow me. Follow me. That's what he says to him. And to the surprise of everyone, I'm assuming, Levi obeyed. He hears this command as Jesus gives it, and he obeys and he gets up from that booth, and he leaves his career of dishonesty, and he follows Jesus. He listens to that, to that command, to that, to that injunction from Christ. And by the way, let me just say this. You and I have personally benefited greatly from this interchange between Jesus and Levi. Do you know how? We've directly, every single one of us, have benefited from that interchange, possibly in a way that you may not have realized. You ever thought about the fact that many of the things we know about the earthly ministry of Jesus, we know because Levi wrote them down for future generations to read? Now, right now, you may be saying to yourself, Levi wrote something? Like, what did he write? Did he write Leviticus? Is that from, like, that's got Levi. Nope, he did not write Leviticus. Levi had another name that you might be a little bit more familiar with. His other name was Matthew. And he's the man that the Holy Spirit inspired to write the gospel of Matthew that we find at the very beginning of our New Testament. That's who this guy is. This is Matthew. This is Levi. Matthew. Same guy. And when you look at stuff like this, when I look at stories like this, stories like Levi's life, it just fascinates me because he had what most people in this world think they need in order to be happy. He had a job that had some status to it. Whether you liked him or didn't like him, I'm sure people respected him to a degree because of the authority that he carried as an agent of the Roman government. And he had what most people, I would imagine, think that they want. You know, a good job, a little respect, lots of money. That's what most people, I think, want in this world. That and a comfy chair, right? Let's add a comfy chair, right? All right, one more thing, fried foods. But that's it, right? Um... That's mostly, you know, like when you look at what most people are seeking in this world, they want a, they want a little status, they want a decent job, something that's predictable, uh, you know, reasonable comforts, some wealth. He had what this world offers, and then once he got it, he realized, I think, I think he realized that once he got it, it just left him feeling empty. He realized it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. All the promises that supposedly came with this weren't worth the trade-offs. And then you have Jesus He comes along and he offers Levi a new life and a chance to do something radically different, completely different than what he's been doing up to this point. And you have Levi going from following what this world promises will bring hope and what this world promises will bring salvation to actually following the real Savior, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Levi was so excited about this, by the way. And so delighted that Jesus looked at him and said, basically, I want you to be one of my followers. He said, follow me. Come with me. You know, be with me. I pick you, right? Levi was so excited about this that he wanted others to meet Jesus as well. And so he hosts a dinner. And by the way, do you get excited about introducing other people to Christ? You know, as you've been following Christ, you've been walking with Christ, isn't it one of the greatest joys in life when you get the opportunity to just share the message of the gospel and let people know who Jesus actually is and the difference that he's made in your life? Can I give you some advice if you're sharing about Jesus? I think a lot of times people are intimidated to share about their faith in Jesus because they think that someone might ask them a question that they can't understand or, or, or can't answer, I should say. They think, what if somebody asked me a question I don't have an answer to? You know what you say if you, have, if you get asked a question that you don't know the answer to? I don't know the most honest answer right just give the honest answer only God's omniscient God's the only one who knows everything we know some things and the longer you walk with the Lord and the more you study scripture the more you'll come to know but you could say something like I don't know let's see if I can figure that out or maybe I'll ask somebody that that might know I don't know the answer to that question but here's what I do know and you know it's hard to argue with your personal testimony of who Jesus is and what he's done in your life you do know that story you may not know every last detail about Scripture, but you do know what Christ has done in your life. And I'd encourage you to start there. I think that's a very powerful testimony. How, how much do you suppose... I mean, do you suppose Levi at this point was a great theologian? I don't know what theology he knew at this point. I mean, he ends up writing you know, a, a large book at the start of our New Testament. That's later in his life. That happens later. That happens you know, decades after this. He had a lot of time to to study up and learn and grow. But at this point, you know what he knew? That Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. Follow me. And then Levi does what? He goes to the people he knows, and he says, hey, come to my house. Let's have some food. I want you to meet Jesus. And they come. Look at what it tells us when you get to verse 15 and and beyond in Mark chapter 2, it says, it, it, it paints this picture here of this meal that's taking place at Levi's house, and it says, "...and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners?" And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I love that. Now, I probably know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway before I share something uh, that I experienced some years ago. But do do you ever think back to high school and wish you could have done a few things a little differently? That's probably like an understatement, right? You know, a little differently, maybe a lot differently. Um, I certainly do. Sometimes when I think back to that. I'm like, all right, some things during a certain season, I'm like, I like how that went. But then the season right before that, I'm like, yeah, I don't like how that went at all. And uh, I was actually talking about this uh, a while back with a friend from high school. It It was just a few years ago. We were chatting about some of these things. My family had actually had dinner with her when we visited Florida. She worked at Universal Studios and had some complimentary tickets that she blessed our family with. And we're like, can we at least take you out to dinner? You know, I mean, like when I looked at how much that cost to go to Universal, I was like, that's a huge blessing. You just, you just hooked us up big time. I was like, Can we at least take you out to dinner? And so we went out to dinner together, and we were talking, and obviously a big part of that involved reminiscing about all sorts of things. And, and we were just talking about growing up in Carbondale, Pennsylvania, and what life was like back during our junior high years and our high school years. Our high school, when I sometimes refer to high school, I'm referring to 7th grade to 12th grade because it was all in the same building. It was junior high and senior high. It was all in the same building and um, you know, started there at that school in seventh grade, and then I think she, she came to the school maybe that, later that year, maybe the next year. But during our conversation, she actually reminded me of when she started attending our school, and she said, you know, when I first started attending that school, we were about 13 years old, and she said, you weren't very nice to me. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, <laughs> my wife and my kids are here. Could you tone down that side of the reminiscing, right? <clears throat> But it's true, when we were 13, her, her last name falls right uh, alphabetically in line with, with my last name. And, and so her, they would put our lockers in alphabetical order, basically. So her locker, for most of high school, junior high and senior high, was right next to mine. And I didn't think a lot about this because I wasn't on the receiving end of this, but she was on the receiving end of this. And she definitely remembered it. And she said, yeah, you used to make fun of me relentlessly relentlessly. And as I thought about it, I was like, you know what? She's right. And I wish that wasn't true, but it definitely was. And as I look back, you know, as I think back to that season of my life, I actually feel like I was projecting my own insecurities on somebody else. Things I didn't like about myself that I was projecting on somebody else. But that's not really something I understood about human nature as a 13-year-old. And again, because our last names are close together in the alphabet, our Lockers continued to be very close to each other throughout the course of the rest of high school, right until we graduated. But during that time, she started noticing a big change taking place in my demeanor, in my attitude, and in the way that I I treated her. And we went from treating each other like adversaries to really developing a good friendship. She loves the Lord, I loved the Lord at that point. And instead instead of making her feel excluded, I started to make her feel included, she said, and we were part of the same friend group, do a lot of stuff together, and the Lord convicted me of that behavior and helped me to gradually learn the importance of demonstrating mercy, especially toward those who feel like they're on the outside, and she told me, as she was recalling this, I'm glad she resolved the story like this and didn't leave 13-year-old me kind of hanging out in the air, but she told me she greatly appreciated that change when she observed it taking place within me, and, um, and she could tell that the Lord was helping me to understand more about his nature and more about the way he would show compassion and the more he would show, or the more about, you know, like the way he would take uh, opportunities to interact with people that feel like they're on the outside and help them feel like they're on the inside. And then you look at Levi's story here. I was thinking about that this week, having lived on both sides of that line. When I read Levi's story, I look at this and I think, I can only imagine how relieved he must have felt to be welcomed by Christ in this moment, after however many years of feeling ostracized from his own people. Now, much of that was his own doing by the life choices he was making, but now he was reaping the effects of those life decisions, excommunicated from the, the synagogue, you know, kicked out um, you know, his friends, his family, everybody just treating him like he was ostracized from them, and now he's welcomed. He's included by Christ. I imagine he was just so relieved by this. He invites others who are feeling like outcasts in their society just come enjoy this meal at my home. We're told here that a sizable group of tax collectors, and the way the scripture references the others, you know, there's tax collectors and basically, and other sinners, you know, tax collectors and sinners that came. Um, a sizable group of some of the people that were considered the culture's most sinful people come to this meal. And you look at this, and it's very clear that this experience delighted Christ, as they're all gathered together. It delights Christ, but while it's delighting Christ, it's also provoking the self-righteous people of the community that are basically looking for reasons to be critical. They feel provoked by this. Jesus is delighted by it. They feel provoked. Now, the Scripture references these people as the scribes of the Pharisees. Now, the scribes of the Pharisees, they were a deeply religious sect of Judaism, They were known for just strict adherence to all kinds of rules. They would look at Scripture and say, yeah, I see some rules in there. Let me add three times as many. Let me make up my own rules. Let me make up rules that are based on other rules that aren't in Scripture. And they had this whole code of conduct that initially I think their intention was to follow the the letter of the law as far as what Scripture taught, but they added so much to it that at this point they they were believing and doing all sorts of ridiculous things. And they look at Jesus and they see what he's doing and they are particularly appalled. And it appears that while this meal is taking place, they find a way to pull some of Jesus' disciples aside so that they can question them. And they ask them point blank. They say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why would he do that? Why would he eat with those people? Why does your guy eat with them? And I can't can't help but wonder what was going on in their heads when they asked this because at the time, when you look at what's happening in the early parts of Mark's gospel, Jesus is clearly gaining in notoriety He's gaining in popularity, he's gaining in prominence, people are starting to follow him, they're listening to what he's saying, they're noticing what he's doing, large crowds of people coming to hear him teach and speak, and they just want to be around him, and people were spreading word of how he taught with authority, people were also speaking of Jesus and and saying, look, this guy demonstrates spiritual authority over illness, over infirmity, over demonic possession you got to check this guy out. And so his name is being spread all around. He's growing in prominence. People are paying all kinds of attention. And with so much going on for him, with so much attention, much of it positive at this point, they're thinking, why would Jesus risk his reputation to sit down with such vile people? Thinking, why would he do that? Like that didn't compute to them. They're like, these are the people we try and avoid because we don't want to be associated with them. We don't want people to think we're lawbreakers like they are. And he sits down for a dinner with them. He sits down for a meal with them. Why would he risk his growing popularity, his new earned reputation, why would he risk this to sit with some vile people like this group happens to be? You know, they wonder, why would he dare associate with cheats and adulterers and people of low social standing? This doesn't compute to them. Now, what does that line of questioning reveal about the hearts of these scribes? What does that tell you about where their hearts happen to be? These men clearly believed they were more righteous than other people. They thought they were better than everybody else, right? They also judged others with severity. They judged others with a lack of compassion. They lived, when you look at what Scripture speaks about their internal motivations, when you look elsewhere, they lived for the praise of men. They wanted other people to notice how righteous they were and to praise them as much as they could be praised. So they lived for the praise of men, not for the glory of God, and so they couldn't understand why Jesus would risk losing the praise of men by hanging out with such vile people. Aren't you glad, by the way, that Jesus was willing to do this? You know, when you read something like this, don't you look at this and and say, where would we be? If he wasn't willing to associate with sinners? Where would we be if he wasn't willing to associate with people like us? Where would we be if he wasn't willing to take the form of a servant in order to lift others up? Where would we be? We would be stuck. We would be lost. We'd be under permanent condemnation. If not for the compassion of Christ, we would have remained lost in sin. If he didn't intentionally befriend us, if he didn't intentionally reach out to us and give us the opportunity to follow him, where would we be? We'd be lost completely forever. Not for his willingness to risk his reputation, we would have no hope. Think about this. Every time Jesus saves a lost sinner, he risks his reputation once again. I mean, just think about it in your life and in my life. How many of us have made it through life mistake free? Anyone here? Or maybe I should say this anyone a scribe of a Pharisee that thinks they made it through life mistake free? <laughs> right? Who makes it through mistake-free? So if I don't make it through mistake-free and you don't make it through mistake-free and yet Jesus is willing to associate with people like us, is he not risking his reputation? What if I goof something up and I make him look bad? Have Christians throughout history made Jesus look bad? Plenty have, right? Every time he saves a lost sinner, he's risking his reputation yet again and he looks at it and he delights to do so. He delights to do so. He's happy to take that risk. Now, as this was taking place, Jesus overheard, the way, uh, he overheard the, the, just the way the scribes are questioning his disciples. So he replied in a way that I think we would all benefit from taking to heart, because he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then look at what he says here. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I didn't come to call the people that already had their life perfectly together, which was nobody. I came to call the sinners. Doesn't that warm your heart? You know, doesn't that bring you a great sense of relief to know that that's true? certainly does to me. Tell you what, self-righteousness is dangerous for many, many reasons. But one of the most critical effects of self-righteousness is the fact that the self-righteous feel like they have no need for the Savior. If you are self-righteous, why would you need the righteousness of Christ to be added to your account? Apparently, you have enough righteousness of your own. Self-righteousness is very, very dangerous. There are many people professing to be Christians in this world that are really self-righteous Pharisees. They rely more on what they do than what Christ has done for them. They think that when they stand before God and give an account for their life, and the Lord looks at them and says, on what basis should I give you entrance into my kingdom? They're going to say... The list is really long, Lord, but here's all the things I did, and they're going to run through the list, and they think that it's on that basis that somehow entrance into the, into the kingdom can be gained. You know, the only answer to that question is this, on the basis of what your son Jesus Christ did on my behalf, living the perfect life for me, dying death to pay for my sin, rising from the grave in total victory over sin, Satan, and death, that's the only hope I have. If my hope is in the work of my hands, I have no hope. But if, in my hope is what, if, in my, if my hope is in Jesus and what he's done on, a, on my behalf, then that's where real hope is found. But the self-righteous see no need for a savior because they're convinced that they're righteous in and of themselves. And that's one of the most wicked things. In fact, when you look at what resembles the heart of Satan, does that not resemble Satan's proud heart quite thoroughly? To look at God and say, I don't need you because I've got me. And so many people do that. Even people, unfortunately, that, that like to tell you that, that they're following Christ, and then sometimes you look at that and you think, I don't know. Sometimes I look at this and I think, you seem to be pretty satisfied with yourself. And so you have some caution given to us here about what it looks like to receive Christ humbly and just get to a spot where you say, you're my only hope. I tried everything in my own right. I tried what this world could offer me. It doesn't appeal to me anymore because it didn't work. As the followers of Christ, let me say this just as we finish up our time together. As followers of Christ, his bride, his church, let's keep what Jesus said in mind. Let's reject the temptation to to embrace self-righteousness because the more we embrace it, the less we think we need Jesus, and then the less likely we are to show compassion to those who have yet to meet Jesus. But by his grace, as he enables us to do so and convinces us of the rightness of this act, by his grace, let's keep the table open to those who feel ostracized and far off so that they can be introduced to Jesus and experience the full joy of life in his presence. I'm so grateful that the Lord didn't look at me and expect me to have everything in my life all together before he welcomed me into his presence. And let me just say this to those of you who are in the room, or if you're listening to the recording of this sometime later, let me say this to you as well. I don't know where you're at with your life. I don't know when you look at your life if you think, all right, there's some things that I'm okay with and other things that I think, yeah, I really goofed that up royally. No one makes it through mistake-free. And Jesus looks at us and he says, I'll take who you are and I'll make you someone new. It's not about you coming to Christ with all the details squared away. It's just about obedience to his command to come follow him. And if we trust in him completely and follow him, he'll take care of those details. He'll give us a new life, he'll give us hope beyond this world, and he'll show us that the things that we once anchored our hope in are not worth anchoring our hope in any longer, because he's the ultimate solution. Levi came to realize that this day, as Christ opened his eyes. This wasn't a natural realization. This was the Lord opening Levi's eyes so he would see these things. And what a wonderful way the Lord used Levi's life You know, in many respects, we don't even know him as Levi. Levi. We just mainly know him as Matthew. And we think about what the Lord did in and through him so that we would hear and understand the message of the gospel as it's outlined for us in the gospel of Matthew. That's a wonderful way for someone's life to be used. The Lord will use your life, by the way, in wonderful ways too. If your desire is to follow him, and you don't think that you have to have had a perfect resume to be on his team, and you know that he'll welcome you and he'll make you a new person, and he'll use you in ways that defy human comprehension. Don't be surprised when he actually does the type of things in your life that we see him doing for Levi in Mark chapter 2. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at your word and to think about the things that you reveal to us in a portion of scripture like this. Lord, we know that, that naturally speaking, we know that we, we just have this tendency to go our own way. We have this tendency to elevate ourselves above you and above others. It's always been something that that we as humanity have wrestled with ever since the fall, where we just take this posture of pride, like Satan took in your presence, and somehow we think it's okay when we do it, but it wasn't okay when he did it. And so, Lord, we pray that with humility that we would recognize that The things that we've been attempting to accomplish in our own strength and wisdom are insufficient. The the best things of this world don't have the capacity to satisfy our soul. The best things in this world are all things that in the end are just going to be burned up when this world is, is recreated, when this world comes to an end and the new world is ushered in. So Lord, please help us not to tether or anchor our hopes to the things of this world that are temporary in nature. Father, we pray that our hope would be anchored and tethered to your son, Jesus Christ, who offers us the gift of his righteousness so we can no longer say that our self-righteousness is sufficient, so we no longer need to rely on our own self-righteousness, which got us nothing anyway. Lord, thank you so much for the examples of of lives like Levi's and lives like others that we see in the gospel who are just, just thrilled with Who your son is and what he's done for humanity. And again, Father, we pray that we would look for opportunities to tell others about your son, whether it be in conversational ways or other means that you open up to us, whether it be around a dinner table or whether it be while driving together with somebody. Help us, Lord, to be men and women who are willing to share the testimony of the transformation that your son has accomplished in our lives and Lord, we're grateful for the fact that there are going to be people that observe that transformation taking place. People that knew us at an earlier season that could see when you're, when you're renewing our mind and giving us a brand new way to think and a brand new way to live and, a, and a, a way to treat people that reflects your heart instead of the selfish priorities of this world. Lord, we're grateful for what you do for us and we're grateful for what you do in us. And again, Father, I pray that if any one of us at this point has felt... Maybe like we're ostracized or maybe like we're on the outside and that, that somehow you would not dare to intervene in our lives because we're just too far gone. We pray, Lord, that we would remember what's referenced in this portion of your word and the, the kind of life that Levi was living and the kind of life that you gave him when he followed your son. Thank you, Lord, for this example. Thank you for this encouragement. We pray for your strength and guidance today and always. And we commit ourselves over to you and pray that it would be the desire of our hearts to follow your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.